Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the social index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Byron Sharp, who's professor of marketing science at the University of South Australia and director of the Ehrenberg Bass Institute. Byron's also the author of How Brands Grow and What Marketers Don't Know. The book provides evidence-based answers to key questions asked by marketers every day. Things like, how does advertising work and how do brands really grow? What do price promotions do? And are loyalty programs really that effective? On today's show, we talk a little bit about the myth that Byron doesn't believe in loyalty. We also tackle a couple of chapters in the book in terms of how advertising really works and what price promotions really do. Well, Byron, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alan. It's nice to be here. I appreciate that. It's an honor to be interviewing you today. I'm a big fan of the book. But before we get to the book, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background and why did you select marketing as a focus area? Well, probably like a lot of people, I fell into it. I, my background, you know, like at high school, I was more of a history, art history guy. And I, I don't know, I can't, I, I guess I decided that the only jobs in that would be, you know, a history professor or something, which you know, I, I didn't, I didn't want to be an academic. So um, I went to do a commerce degree where I was going to specialize in management. And um, I found the management classes very pseudo-academic. <laughs> 
you know, coming from a, I don't know, I think, it, you know, came from more academic background. I just thought this was just silliness. But the marketing classes I, I enjoyed. I mean, probably had the lecturers were better or something. I don't know. But uh, I certainly felt, no, I enjoyed Philip Kotler's book. I thought, I thought this was, as a, you know, as a, well, you know, 17 year old or whatever, this taught you something about what, you know, businesses did, the basic thing of business, which was providing products and services for, for customers. So I enjoyed that. I, that's what I thought I would be sort of learning about management. So I readjusted and went, you know, no, I'm, I'm doing marketing. I'm a marketing major. And then years later, I fell into academia, sort of accidentally, and one day woke up and realized, oh, oh I guess I'm a scientist. <laughs> Which, uh, there was no plan there, but, uh, you know, I ended up, I was studying, I was in my area, you know, marketing, but I was, you know, just studying a bit of the real world like all scientists do. I've just fallen into marketing as that area. It's a fun area to be in, you know, because so little is known. So that, that's quite nice. Right. So you, you made this comment that you didn't want to become an academic, but now you're an academic. Do you feel bad about that? No, I love my job. It's fantastic. Okay. <laughs> but as a teenager, no, I didn't, I didn't want to be an academic. <laughs> so you, you, maybe, maybe it wasn't seen as cool. I don't know, but you made it cool now. Yeah, I mean, we never know. I, there's that lovely talk that Steve Jobs gives, so you know, you can never really plan again, but you can you can look back and you can see how the dots connect. Right. Well, so in 2010, you published How Brands Grow and What Marketers Don't Know. So seven years on, this book is, I think, taking on a life of its own. It, it seems to get more popular in the circles that I run in every month. And that's kind of an amazing feat for something that came out seven years ago. But what drove the creation of that book? Okay. Yeah, it is. I mean, yes, it, it, uh, every year it sells more. I mean, I think it's still early days. Yes, it, 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 it does. It has taken on a life of its own. And quite literally, because it was never designed to sell to you know, mass markets. Now, the book came about because the Orenberg Bass Institute has advisory board boards in the US and Europe and Australia. And board members asked for us to write a book on the early fundamental findings. The intention was that so they wanted a book that you know you could you could give to chief marketing officer could give to their CEO, and CFO, and others and say you know you've heard we're making changes in marketing again, but this time there's some science behind them. It's not just the latest fashion, and you know so this would as we've seen it does. I mean it enhances the status of marketing in an organisation when you can do that when you can start the sort of evidence based marketing journey. So the book needed to be, it needed to be hardcover, it needed to have a prestigious publisher, and we got Oxford University Press, and they're not too shabby. So, you know, that's why, that's what fitted the bill, and that's what it was for, you know, and, and but as I say, then it started to sell, and Ad Age, you know, it got voted with the book of the year or something, and, uh, you know, it's been covered in Financial Times and and others. So yeah, it, it has taken a, on a life of its own. It, it, was, it was the subtitle of it, you know, what marketers don't know. It, it was always designed to, you know, that was a little a bit provocative, you know, deliberately provocative. But it was it was designed to, I suppose, catch attention. You know, it was it was never put out and you know it never appeared on uh, bookshelves and things. Oxford University Press or an academic publisher, they don't have a sales force. Right. You know, you in the book you tackle a number of different myths, I would call them, you know, around, and we'll get to some of them around how advertising actually works. But one of the things I think, as we were talking before, it seems like 
it's a, a myth or maybe a misconception that you don't believe that brand loyalty actually exists. And can I just want to give you a chance to correct the record because I think you do. Yes, that's quite interesting. As the book has become more famous, obviously, in many ways, in the same, you know, in the same sort of thing that we would expect uh, for brand buying, you get a lot of light users, i.e. people who <laughs> might have might have bought the book but only read a chapter or uh, meaning to read the book or uh, have read a little summary of the book. So needless to say, there's a lot of, what's a, you know, a little bit of knowledge can be a dangerous thing. So yeah, the, the funniest one I, I think of is this idea that Nuremberg Bass have proven there's no such thing as brand loyalty, whereas if you actually read the book, you know, we've got lines like, you know, brand loyalty is part of every market, you know, we see it everywhere. <laughs> you need to be more blunt in saying this loyalty. But, it, but the, the thing is, it's just different from the, the old conception of brand loyalty of, of uh, passionate consumer commitment or falling in love with, with brands. This is, um, consumers are naturally loyal. All brands actually enjoy pretty high loyalty, but it's like gravity. It's not something that you can, you know, move around dramatically. I mean, you, it's a natural part of markets. And, and so it's predictable. We can predict a brand's loyalty metrics based on its size. So is it, would you, I'm going to test you here a little bit, would you then say that loyalty is there, but you should be investing in availability, whether that's mental or physical availability? Yeah, that, that's the theory that binds together the laws that are presented in the, you know, the natural laws that are presented in the book, that, that brands different, if you want to grow your brand, then you have to enhance mental and physical availability. And in doing so, you will, of course, get more customers if you're more available to the wider market. But also those customers will be a little bit more loyal because you will just be easier to, to be loyal to. Or, or another way of putting it is that you're a little bit harder to get away from. I always um, <laughs> use the example of you know, asking, have you ever done what I do, which is you, know, you, you eat a meal at McDonald's and then you sort of slap your forehead and say, you know, never again. <laughs> No, I'm not going to do this again. But you know, and you know, from your own behaviour, you know you, you you probably will. And this is the advantage that big brands with high mental and physical availability have. McDonald's is just a little bit harder to get away from. You know, there's going to be a time when you're you're short of time, and you look down the street and you see a McDonald's, and you know what they sell, and you know how much you're going to pay, and you know about how long it's going to take, and all these things make it very suddenly easy and attractive, even if you don't like the food terribly. In contrast, we've all been to a great little cafe or restaurant and said, wow, this is great, love the food, I you know, must come back here. And then we haven't because, <laughs> you know, we, we never really quite remembered the name or exactly the street it was on. We got no reinforcing advertising and it was just a little bit harder. So, yes, mental and physical availability are they're what make companies valuable. And, and that's a fantastic story for marketing because, you know, if you asked a CEO, if you showed a CEO and go, really, look, you know, you're a Google or a Coca-Cola or whatever, you know, you know, really the value of this company is entirely about the mental and physical availability you've built up, isn't it? And I think most of them would go, well, yeah, you know, everything else is replaceable and not terribly valuable, but it's the mental and physical availability. And then you say, well, who looks after that in the organization? And uh, it's sales and marketing. Which I think would be quite a shock to, like, you know, CEOs of banks and things, because they think, oh, God, we don't take those people seriously at all. And yet they're <laughs> in charge of the, the most valuable assets the organization has. Right. 
Well, so physical availability, I'm going to shorthand this, but is largely kind of distribution and where you show up in the world. Yeah, which means in today's world, that's, that's, not, that's not just bricks and mortar. That's also online and it's also hours, you know, opening hours. So it, it is actually quite complicated. Right. It's more than just getting, and I love it when people say, well, we've got 100% we've got physical availability. <laughs> Go, <laughs> really? <laughs> You know, right. you're like you're right next to every single consumer, and they go, "Oh no, no, we're in all the major supermarkets." Like, <laughs> okay, wow. If Co if Coke had adopted that thinking, they'd 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 stopped trying to gain more physical availability in what about 1952 or something. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And on a recent vacation, we could find Coke products in these back roads of Costa Rica. So I don't even know how the distribution gets there, but it does. It's impressive, isn't it? It is. I also had a question recently with someone. They said, um, "But what happened? Our brand's already got a hundred percent mental availability." What <laughs> consumers think of nothing else in their lives but your brand? <laughs> what, what they meant is in them, you know, market research tracking that you know they had a hundred percent recognition. Well, that's a long way from hundred percent mental availability. Right. Well, this I think. Talking about this mental availability leads us to advertising, which is chapter nine of the book. You know how advertising, how One advertising. One of my favorite chapters, and and <laughs> uh, most ignored actually. But I suppose because the other things in the book about loyalty and differentiation and some of those other things are so shocking to marketers that that it gets a, that gets you know that drowns out everything else, and so it gets an enormous amount of attention. But the the advertising chapter is really important, I think. You know, we've learned a lot about advertising by actually studying what people actually do in their behavior and, and what they actually are exposed to. So, sorry, you had a question about the... Well, yeah. So, I, you know, it attempts to kind of demystify how advertising works. And, you know, I wondered if you could just describe to listeners, you know, how does it work? Okay. The chapter gives, uh, I think, uh, five mechanisms through which advertising works. Advertising is complicated. You know, there are multiple ways that it works, often simultaneously. Because what it, what it really, one of the most important things that it points out is that the, the lot, awful lot of people, the dominant theory of how advertising works, people just find it so hard to, practitioners find it so hard to get out of their head, this idea that advertising works like a trial lawyer, like Clarence Darrow or something, that, that you know, makes convincing arguments and shifts, changes people's, you know, view on the brand or... And tells them why it is that they should need this brand in their life and not, not this other one. And that's actually a really small part of the way that advertising works. You know, occasionally there are persuasive, you know, there are occasionally there are persuasive messages, but even when we content anal analyze advertising, we've, we've done this uh, with um, using people on the street, people in ad agencies and others, and we've looked at ads over time, etc. And and everyone, everyone agrees when they actually look at the ads that, that more than half of ads don't even try to make a persuasive message and when you realize you know you think of olympics advertising you know or sport advertising around the you know football stadium and there'll be you know the the cunningly crafted persuasive message that says sony <laughs> <laughs> right. you know and and you when so when you realize that yeah okay this persuasion theory it's got to be a bit overblown because the there's got to be something else and so the dominant way i mean i, I say there are you know, if you read the chapter, there, there are, there's like five ways that mechanisms that advertising works. But the, the, the dominant way is about refreshing memory structures. So 
a typical fast-moving consumer goods brand, 80% or so of its uh, customer base are buying it once a year or less often, less often than that. And, and these people are, are give an enormous amount of, of the, the sales volume in any year. Huge proportion of the sales volume in any way comes from people who did not buy last year or the year before that, just because they're so light. So they've got a chance of buying your brand this week or tomorrow, uh, you know, something like one in 500 or one in 1,000. And the way advertising works is by, when it does work, is by catching some attention and refreshing some memory structures, just from making that brand just a little bit easier to see on shelf or see looking down the street, just make, making the brand just a little bit more accessible. And so this, this little nudge might be from, you know, one chance in a thousand to buy the brand next week to two chances in a thousand to buy the brand next week, which doesn't sound like much. I mean, isn't much, right? And, and that's exactly why consumers say, when you ask them, you know, are you affected by advertising? You know, are there any ads that you've seen today that changed your mind about a brand or something? You know, they, they, they think these are preposterous questions. <laughs> they go, no, of course not. No, no, no. Advertising doesn't affect me. You know, because you know, moving from one chance in a thousand to two chances in a thousand is, is like being hit with a feather. It's nothing. But think of it from the brand's perspective, from the, the advertiser's perspective. If, if every single person who got hit with an exposure from by by our ad, move from one chance to two, the sales effect is double. Right, right. You know, that, that's a huge uplift. And, and so people don't find this hard to understand in their heads. We can get huge uplift at an individual level, right? Advertising can actually be quite powerful, but it is actually like an extremely weak force. It's a bit like gravity. You know, gravity is an extremely weak force, but you know, it can have very, very, very profound effects. And advertising is exactly the same because we have so many consumers who are exceptionally low probabilities of, of buying us. And so that is quite a profound realization of what the role of advertising is. It's not, it's not to have, make them have religious conversions. You know, to go, oh, wow, oh, geez, I didn't know that about that, that bank. Yes, gosh, that really does change my view. It's not to do that. It's to build and refresh little memory structures like, oh, that's the red one. Coke is still here. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah, right. I remember. Yeah, it tastes nice. Right. I used to drink it a lot when I was a kid. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So one of the things I've had or heard from other people, and I've had this thought myself, is I think I totally agree, and the, the evidence is obviously there in the book, 
that that's how on macro how advertising works. But as I think about creating a new memory structure, or I think in your second book, you call it like a CEP, a category, I'm going to forget the description. Entry, entry point. Yeah. It's, entry just a point. it's just a focus to say, you know, not, not all memory structures are as useful as others. Right. We want to build memory structures that make it easy for people to buy us. So, you know, if, if you're a consumer goods, if you're packaged goods, you really need to make sure they know what the pack looks like and, and how to, you know, navigate the shelf. If you're a retail store, you need to, you know, or a bank or something, you need to make sure that people know what your branches look like when they look down. So if you're selling services, you know, if you're a department store or a university or a bank or something, you have to build memory structures so that people link you to the products that you actually, because that, that, that's, people don't go into a department store to just browse. They don't go into a bank to, you know, learn what exciting new financial services they have. They go on because they go, I want a home loan. And so, you know, the synapses fire in the brain, home loan. And, and that's the link. That's the category entry point you've got to link to. Right. And my guess is then advertising has to, along with all the other mechanisms at your disposal, but at some level they have to, if you need to build those new memory structures, it also has to work against that, not just refresh existing memory structures. Yeah, like McDonald's in recent years has had to build memory structure. You know, we do breakfast and, you know, and what, and what that means, you know, hash browns and other stuff. And that can be quite difficult to do. I see, well, you see it's in the press at the moment, isn't it, that a Coca-Cola are... Uh, <laughs> With Coke working, Zero? Yeah, working yeah. to clear up the mess that they sort of have found themselves after after 50 years or so. And, and so they're finally saying, you know, we've got Coke with sugar and we've got Coke without sugar. That's because an enormous amount of people didn't know that Coke Zero, or even Diet Coke, had no sugar in it. Right, right. That's quite a... Obviously, that's a shock for marketers when they see survey results like that. It's also a bit of an indictment, isn't it? You know, we do... We really do have to basic things that we about our products or things that people need to know in their heads in order to buy a particular product. And uh, it's a lot harder than we think to get those into people's heads. Well, and I know it's a move after Pepsi did it. I talked to the CMO that was behind the Pepsi move from Pepsi Max to Pepsi Zero Sugar earlier in the year. And they even put it in the Super Bowl a halftime show. It was the Pepsi Zero Sugar halftime show. <laughs> But it's interesting. It's, it's staggering, isn't it? I mean, we, we, it's a fundamental thing about marketing. We should never assume, you know, go and find out with consumers. We, because, you know, obviously if you work in Pepsi or Coke, you, you know, you know that one has zero calorie. You know, you know, you know all this technical information and, and it's not that complicated. So you think the consumers will know it too, but they live busy lives. <laughs> they run on heuristics and you know, often they don't know these things. Right. One other question I, I've, batted around here as well as in conversations is is how does I know you have this approach that you need to reach as many consumers as possible because to your point earlier in fast moving consumer goods 80% of people are casual buyers yeah very light yes partly because they don't buy the category very often but also because they buy multiple brands they're polygamously loyal but in a world of limited resources on a brand side how do you counsel folks on those trade-offs right I, I can't necessarily get the reach I would like. Well, no one no one can, right? So when I'm Atlanta in Atlanta, Coca-Cola moan about their limited budget. Which, <laughs> you know, yeah. You know, no one has the budget that they want. But the 
you know, the rules, the guidelines are the, the same. We want to we want to get as much from the budget that we have, and we do have to reach all the potential, you know, all the consumers who potentially can buy our brand. You know, all category buyers, or, or you know, all all the category buyers that shop in the stores that we've got distribution. We have to reach them all with advertising. Now, if we've got a limited budget, we won't reach them as often, and no one will reach them as often as we as we like. But we we still must gain as much reach as possible. So the, the yeah, there's the temptation always to. I'm not sure why the the logic. It's a bit like oh, you know, it's a bit like going oh, this you know. Yes, I know I have to fight the war, but wouldn't it be nice if I if I if I just concentrate on this little island here? I can take this island. That'd be fantastic. It'll be glorious. So we'll have a glorious battle on this little <laughs> island. You're like, great, but you know, it's not. You still got to win the whole war. Every week I see some consultant, you know, announced some new whiz bang proprietary targeting technique, and they've identified. You know, in the customer base, there's, uh, you know, this segment of consumers that shows three times, you know, your advertising gets three times in effect with this group as, as the others. I'm like, well, yeah, so what? Still got to reach all the others. <laughs> yeah. It's like telling a salesperson, you know, you need, you need to win 10 new customers this year. And they go, okay, that's their target, 10 new customers. They know that there's two or three customers who are, you know, sort of warm prospects, very likely, you know, almost there, you know, only need a bit of a nudge. Okay, fine, sure. But they've still got to win the other seven. So, yes, we need to reach, and particularly we need to reach those the big brands. They've got millions of very light, infrequent buyers. And if they do not reach those people, it's so easy for the, their brand to fall out of those people's lives. So just to stay where you are, you need to reach those people. And if you want to grow, well, you absolutely need to reach those people. Do you believe that marketers are making mistake by the medium choices that they're selecting to play in? You know, yeah, the, the hypothesis is that TV has the greatest reach, right? Potentially. Oh, well, it, well, it depends on. I mean, you can't say anything about any particular medium. I mean, it depends on what you're on who you're selling to. So, so you know, Aaron Basin Institute doesn't advertise on TV because. Right. You know, we're, we're trying to reach uh, chief marketing officers. You, you know, <laughs> no, so it, 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 it's easy to make it, a list so of. It's, <laughs> it, there are, you have to crunch the numbers and see, but we, we need reach, and we need to, and we need real reach. You know, we need quality reach. We need to actually reach their brains, not not, not reach their screening out. But yeah, TV is a. We've said for ages, TV is a very attractive medium because it's a. It delivers video. It delivers enticing videos to an audience that's sitting down wanting to watch video who are relaxing so they'll, they'll they're not screaming out they have a tendency to take it in and it is a yeah, massively fast and vast medium so and and it's not going away that myth has died that that the tv is just dying tv's not dying it's having babies if anything <laughs> i like that concept it's having babies <laughs> i think i I think yes, that's not that's not my quote. I think it comes from I think it comes from Lindsay Clay in the UK. It's very insightful. Okay, okay. Well, let's transition in gears a little bit. So we talk about chapter nine and advertising. Chapter ten. If you've ever worked in consumer package goods like myself and yourself, they love to pull the price lever. Yes, it's price. a bit of a paradox, isn't it, Marcus? It is. Come out, come come out of their MBA, you know, with a Kotler thing of saying I must be premium priced. You know, it's like a badge of honor. I must be premium priced. But then I'll do deep price promotions regularly. <laughs> and it, it's just the easy lever. It's the easy button, you know, if you will. 
But what should marketers know about if they haven't read that chapter or you want to point them back to it? What should they know? I think we know price promotions are addictive because that's an insidious thing. We all need price promotions are part of the marketing world we live in. They are useful to consumers. They they help them speed them through the supermarket because it allows a little heuristic, you know, which one of my brands is on special. So there's some sort of value in it. But the insidious problem with price promotions is they give you a little sales spike that feeds into, you know, that hopefully lets you hit your sales target for the year or, or gives you a new score. And then next year, you know, invariably you're given the same sales target or, or higher, which means that the only way that you'll hit is you have to you have to do that promo again. And probably the temptation is to add another one as well. And then you do it the next year and the next year. So so my colleague John Dawes has written this report for our sponsors about the addictive nature of price promotions. And of course, the other insidious thing is that your competitors don't want to give up their market share. And if you've only stolen it with something as easy as doing a price promotion, well, you know, they can do that back. And so they do. And so <laughs> you get hit with this double whammy. I mean, first of all, the sales fight that you got wasn't so attractive because the profits were very low because of your, the, the discount. But also, all those sales that you gained will be stolen back from you by competitors with their own price promotions, and they will be stealing sales that you would have had at full price. So they cost money. Any consultant who tells you that they've worked out, you know, price, some price promotions can make money is just they've not factored in all the full things. They always lose money. That said, you know, advertising costs money too. Or lots of stuff we do in marketing costs money. So the, the, the thing is to manage them appropriately and get as much return as possible and the largest return is not about getting the biggest spike you have to work out what price promotions are for they so probably the most surprising thing that people would get in reading about what price promotions do that chapter is that they they don't bring new consumers into the brand mm. price promotions right are seen largely by they're like loyalty programs they skew massively to our existing customers so not only are you you're getting a spike on sales where you're getting a, a spike on sales at a lower price with people that would have bought you otherwise. Yes. Well, my, well yeah. I mean, you do get an increase in sales in that period. So, you know, if they, you know, you say you've got someone who, you know, is coming up to the shelf, they sort of three major brands in their repertoire. So you've got about 30% chance of being bought, but you're on promo today. So that 30% leaps to like 60% and you, you double your sales, but it is with the people who already had, a propensity, you know, half of those would have bought anyway. And you've now given it to them, yes, at a discount price. They would have paid, half of them would have paid the full price. And that's if you get a sales uplift that's, uh, you know, double. So they're they scary yeah, figures. So bottom, the bottom line is this is a big marketing investment and it needs to be managed carefully against objectives. And, you know, the key objective is, is this allowing us to hold on to physical availability? Is this allowing us to gain physical availability? You should be thinking, okay, what's the minimum amount of price promo that I need to do to hold on to my physical availability? And be very careful about going beyond that. Because if you do, you're basically burning shareholder funds. Interesting. Interesting. I've never heard it put quite that succinctly that I'm going to rephrase that for my own use and see if this makes sense to you. It's really about maintaining, if it's a brick and mortar, a retailer relationship so you don't lose shelf space. Yes. And, you know, most sales teams are very honest about that. They'll say that's why we have to do price promotions because it's part of the way the retailer does their business and, uh, and so that's fine. 
but you've got to make sure that, that you're managing against that objective. And that's quite rare. I've been in you know, large groups of marketers saying, right, so you've all agreed. You, know, you do price promotions to maintain and maybe hopefully nudge some physical availability. Is that how you evaluate your price promos? And choosing between the ones that work better or worse and how much you should have. And then everyone goes silent. It's like, oh, no, no, we don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they're looking at lifts and telling themselves that they're getting volume they wouldn't have got otherwise. Yeah. Interesting. And, so and sometimes we're talking here about multi-billion dollar investments. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah. Well, in some of the companies I've worked in, you know, the, the trade budget, the trade promotion budget is four times the advertising budget at, at a minimum. It's insane. It is insane. And so that's quite a tragedy for, for marketing and sales. But then, you know, so the CEO should be told off as well. You know, CEO, you go, hey, on your watch, you're spending like $4 billion on price promotions. And you don't actually have proper management things in place. You have people who do them. That's not managing. That's just doing them. Right. right. And well, and, and to your point, I think a minute ago, is that the objective is ill-aligned with what they actually are good for. Yeah. So, interesting. Well, let's, you know, I want to kind of step back a little bit from the book and just think about brand building today. You know, what what would you advise brand managers to be doing and, and you know, how can they build strong brands today? <laughs> uh, right. Well, that's a big question. <laughs> I know. Strong brands. We, we want to be, we want to build um, big profitable brands, which is a noble thing. You know, we want to do stuff that matters for the consumers for the marketplace a tiny small brand uh, is not you know, it's not serving the needs of many people so yeah i would rephrase that rather than building strong brands to saying we you know, want to build big profitable brands you know that all aside from companies in say mining all the big sustainable businesses of the world are built on brands they're built on building mental and physical availability so it's got a profound you know, realization that, that that really underpins the value and sustainability of so many of so many companies. So it's very very important. Marketing is very very important, and there are so many great brands in the world. But there are, there are also you know the rise of private label and even of, of the discounters like the you know, the German Aldi and Lidl, who you know stock non brands if you like, is because there are there are an awful lot of brands. I would say just they're not really brands. I mean. They're just stuff. They've got some physical availability, but it's very tenuous. In Australia, in any supermarket, there'll be lots of tin tomatoes. I presume this is a phenomenon all around the world. <laughs> Hugely dominated by Italy, right? So the, the Italians have done a very good job at creating, you know, cheap. They've got the processes. They can, they can, they can build a can of tomatoes pretty well at a low price. But they're sort of non-brands, right? I mean, you know, if you ask people, you know, which one do you buy? They'll go, uh, the Italian one. <laughs> they're all Italian. Yeah, well, I don't know. You know, and an awful lot is like, I buy the Italian one that's in my supermarket. Oh, but there's three or four Italian ones. Yeah, well, I buy the one that's on special or the one I just saw. They just have not gotten to people's heads. They, they're, they have not built the distinctive assets that we that gives a brand that allows a brand that allows consumers to be loyal to a brand they're not really brands so you know, the desirable thing for a market is that you do build something that, that, that gets into people's heads you know even if it is something that sounds as trivial as well i remember i remember working for a bank in australia for some years that st george bank and you know had a featured a dragon as its logo and uh explained to them this is really important you're the only bank that has a dragon but <laughs> Being bankers, they're like, 
Yeah, but what's that got to do with banking? I, I don't know. We don't, you know, and every time they ran an ad that didn't feature a dragon, you know, it just was, it just like went over everyone's heads. No one saw it, you know, just pouring money down the drain. It's like put the dragon in the ads. So these things that people think can be quite trivial are actually, this is what branding is all about. Most fundamental, it's not as mysterious as, you know, there's so many books that are like quackery and pseudoscience about brands. You know, they're very esoteric. Branding is looking like you and not someone else. Interesting. You know, it depends on distinctive assets that you've, that you've got, you know, a color or a shape or a dragon or whatever, a logo, a jingle, a style of advertising, a feel that people associate with you and they don't associate with other people, with other brands. And, and that is what, that's branding and that's incredibly valuable. You know, 99.9% .9 of the world's brands have never measured their distinctive assets. That is, people can have the title brand manager and yet they have not, they have not actually measured, they're not actually sure what's in people's heads, they're not sure how people recognize them rather than someone else. That again is an indictment on marketing. How can we say we're managing a brand and we don't actually, not actually sure <laughs> what it is that does the branding? So that's a good starting place, I say to every brand manager. Ehrenberg Bass Institute have developed away. Jenny Romanek has developed the brand asset grid. You know, we published on it. This, you, you know, we can help you if you want, but you know, everyone should be able to do some surveys and measure their distinctive brand assets. Otherwise, you're not really managing your brand. Right. Well, that's a good point. I mean, good tip. So tell us a little bit more about the Ehrenberg Bass Institute and how you work with clients. Okay. Well, the Institute came about because I, I sort of fell into academia. I, I fell into having working in the University of South Australia's commercialization consulting company as marketing manager. And a good marketing manager, the first thing you do is you look at the books, you see where the sales are coming from. And I saw that the business school that I was uh, associated with was a pretty woeful performer. You know, basically sold, sold catch-up courses, you know, like three-day, you know, marketing training catch-up sort of course for those who hadn't done a degree, which, you know, I thought that's not going to last. You know, we'll soon have lots of marketing graduates out there who can do that themselves. But it was out in the science technology areas and the pharmaceutical and medical that they were bringing in quite substantial amounts of revenue as people were funding their research because they discovered stuff and the world's wanted, you know, the world, the, the, there's so much stuff we don't know about in the world. So when I sort of became a full-time academic, it occurred to me that we really needed to do some research and probably there would be companies out there that would be willing to support new discoveries. And that's how the Ehrenberg Bass Institute came about. And today it's you know, by far the largest such uh, research institute for marketing in the world because we have uh, sponsors, corporate sponsors all around the world who provide us with financial support and in return we continue to make discoveries. And well... It's not just that. I mean, obviously the discoveries are important, but most of our sponsors would say that the reason that they, they engage with the Ehrenberg Bass Institute is to help them on the journey to evidence-based marketing, to get their marketers focused on knowing what we do know about how the world works, and so not having arguments about real-world stuff. You know, like if something's in the real world, there's a Unilever director who said to me, I want my staff to argue about the creative things. I don't want them to argue about real-world empirical you know, we should either know that or we'll go out and find it, but there's no point having arguments about it. Let's argue about the, you know, architects do not argue about the laws of physics. 
they'll have pretty strong views on what makes a beautiful building or not, but they don't argue about the laws of physics. And in marketing, we need to move to that same thing. So our sponsors are on a journey to embed that, which is, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not a trivial task. You don't turn marketers around and big marketing departments around, you know, overnight. It takes a, a lot of changing of metrics and, and people have to give up on, on some cherished beliefs. So you said how brands grow is myth-busting. Yeah, yeah, science has that tendency to be misbusting. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, the real world is a strange place. It doesn't conform with our, our theories very often. But it's quite hard for people to give up cherished beliefs. It, it took doctors 150 years or more to start washing their hands. You know, to adopt germ theory was, was very radical. They didn't like it at first. They didn't like it at first. They absolutely rejected it completely. The idea that doctors could be harming patients by touching them was, you know, that, obviously that was pretty confronting for doctors. So the idea that, you know, marketers might have been doing things that actually were bleeding their brands or, you know, weren't, while they were doing lots of price promotions, weren't actually managing them, that, that, that's confronting and it takes, it, it, it takes time. So we work with, well, the Irmbu Bass Institute works with sponsors. I, I always see my job as director is to, if any sponsor says, you know, we want to move faster, we want to engage more, that, that my job as director is to try to make sure that the institute can respond and, and, and can actually help them do that. Interesting. Well, I usually like to step back from the conversation we've been having with all my guests and, and kind of ask a series of questions about you and kind of what drives you and things like that. But I, I want to start with, has become my favorite question to ask, is what experience of your past do you think defines or makes up you know, who you are today, or makes you who you are today? Well, that one I mentioned about, you know, realizing that you know, while it was fun to be sort of pontificating business academic, but really just recycling the same stuff. And if you didn't make new discoveries, then, you know, the world doesn't know you're living. And uh, if you want people to fund you, 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 you've got to create, you've got to discover new things. So that was very profound. I didn't expect, my background is not in science and, and stuff. So that was quite a surprise to see that the, uh, yeah, that these science and technology people, they were, they were out, outperforming the business stuff hugely <laughs> businesses were far more likely to give their money than they were to the business school that that was a bit of a shock and uh maybe rise to the challenge interesting what fuels your success or drives you to get up every day i don't know if anyone really knows that do they they're always uh, <laughs> on a journey to understand what uh at least i like i like puzzling you know i like i like finding things out and thinking about them. i mean i spend my life well, actually, a huge part of the life is actually not, not so much making the discoveries, but working out how to, I suppose marketing, isn't it? it's communication, how to communicate it, how to get it across. And so, you know, we look back on some of our early reports and things with, with some embarrassment and it's like, oh, right, why did we say it in that such a complicated way? Or why did we not realize that, you know, this is, it's so easy now, you know, so easy once you realize this is the way to say it. So doing that puzzling, working that out, thinking about your audience, that is quite fun. It's fun knowing stuff. You know, I, I, I say to all our young researchers, yeah, you know, there is, there, you know, don't, don't deny it. You know, there is fun in, in, in being a bit of a smartass. <laughs> well, no one would, if you say to any person, would you, would you like to be, you know, give up on 10% of your memories or knowledge, you know, or, or, or lose, I don't know, all your toes? 
no one would want to lose their knowledge because that's what what makes them them. Right. So I think we we probably all fear of a lobotomy far more than we would fear you know losing a limb. <laughs> yeah, true. So you study marketing, so this might be a really hard question, and you have lots of clients. I must say, you know, but what are there brands or companies or I'll give you an out causes that you think others should be taking notice of. What you want me to name like famous favorite brands? No, 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 I can't, and I can't, you know, I can't publicly comment on. I get CEOs asking me this, you know, how how well are we doing, you know, like on the you know evidence based marketing journal journey. Obviously, I can't talk about, you know, we're sponsored by Coke and we're sponsored by Pepsi and we're sponsored by Schweppes, so you know we can't say what any of the others do. So I'm going to take the out and talk about cause. Look. In the big picture, the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, while we study, you know, marketing, it's just it's just one part of the real world. And and really the the bigger picture is that we're part of the scientific revolution. You know, a few hundred years ago, human beings invented this thing called science and which, you know, it's just about getting out into the real world and, and carefully looking carefully observing and looking for patterns and documenting them and seeing where they where they hold and where they don't, which we call laws, you know, scientific laws funny old-fashioned term for them. <laughs> and this has utterly transformed our world. I mean, the world is just an amazingly better place. We've got 7 billion people on the planet and hardly any of them are in starvation anymore. Uh, we're going to have to change our measure of absolute poverty because it's slipped below 10% of the world's population and it's an absolute free-fall. Life expectancy has climbed dramatically everywhere. I mean, almost every single metric you can think of is improving. So this is fantastic. But it's still early days for the Enlightenment. There's still lots of non-evidence-based decisions being made by politicians and managers and others. There's still lots of quackery and superstition. So I remember Carl Sagan's book, um, you know, Science is a, is a Candle in the Dark. That's the cause. You know, un, un, the Enlightenment is, which is, you know, a scientific revolution, but it also runs with a whole lot of social things too. Of The slogan for the Royal Society, the first the first science organization was nullius in verba, which means basically don't accept anyone's word. Don't take just because just because the king says it or the pope says it or something, that doesn't matter. Ask for the evidence, you know. And this is a this of course leads to lots of this 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 changed society. We stopped going. Oh well, you know, your view counts more because you're male, or your view counts more because you've got this title. So it is a it is a wonderful thing the Enlightenment, but it's still got a long way to go. There are still people who are being killed because they don't hold views on you know like you know that they don't hold the religious view of the country or something. So we've still got still got a long way to go. And and that I'm a big fan of human civilization. I'm a great optimist. I think we're moving all in the right direction. It doesn't mean I don't think we're moving fast enough or something. So that's what motivates me. Okay, good. Last question: What do you think? The future of marketing holds. Oh, predicting the future, of course, is a mugs game. <laughs> we have some of the best forecasting scientists in the world associated with the institute. People like Scott Armstrong and Keston Green, and they would they would say predicting is really really hard. So be conservative. So I'm not going to give you any out there predictions. What I what I do think is we will see lots more automation, and this is a good thing. Uh, there's lots of day-to-day -day marketing tasks that can be automated. And so I guess this is a pattern that's been running, you know, in the same way that things like washing machines stuff came in. The drudgery will be taken away and 
there'll be much more there'll be more time and much more premium placed on actually thinking so the implications for that for any marketer is that you really need to upskill and not I don't mean the sort of upskilling which is you know just the basic like how to place an ad on Facebook I mean deep knowledge about how buyers buy how brands grow and working out the million empirical questions that we have in marketing like you know what what works best in this situation how how should I be judging this particular activity so the the really the future of marketing I suppose it looks bright for the Aaron Big Bass Institute the bread and butter but the future belongs to the thinking marketers rather than the just the doers I think that's a bright future for most good marketers I think so yes yes but it's still we've got a long way to go I remember I remember the funniest line that the marketing director once said to me, he said, I'd love to get my staff together to learn about what price promotions do, but we're so busy at the moment. Oh, I, yes. What, you mean like <laughs> doing price promotions? And then, oh, yes. Right. <laughs> I know. It's like a chicken and the egg argument half the time. It's funny. Well, I can't thank you enough. It's been an enlightening conversation, and I'm sure the listeners are going to love it. Thank you. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Great. I look forward to hearing about it hearing what people think. Marketing Today is brought to you by Atomic. Atomic focuses on unleashing the growth potential for clients we serve. Atomic is a strategic consultancy specializing in business, marketing, brand, and innovation. Our singular goal is to help you accelerate your efforts with the right mix of expertise, analysis, and creativity. Check us out at atomic.com. A-T-O-M-C-K dot com. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with project management by Sarah Williams, audio production by Aaron Campbell, writing and editing by Kevin Greeley, social media support by Megan Woods, art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. We love to hear from listeners at info at atomic, A-T-O-M-C-K dot com. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today.